Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Let's start in prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. O Master who loves mankind, illuminate our hearts with the pure light of your divine knowledge, and open the eyes of our mind to understand the teachings of your holy scriptures. Instill in us also the fear of your blessed commandments that we may overcome all carnal desires, entering upon a spiritual life and understanding and acting in all things according to your holy will. For you are the enlightenment of our souls and bodies, O Christ God, and to you we give glory together with your eternal Father and your all-holy, gracious, and life-giving spirit, both now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. I want to welcome my brother, Father Sebastian. Hello, Father Sebastian. Welcome. Hello. It's good to be here. Okay, good to have you. Welcome, everybody, to our program here tonight as we kind of tackle the scriptures in a different way or in a new way that maybe you haven't seen before or experienced before. And I'm just going to say right here at the beginning, there's more than meets the eye. Okay, there's more than meets the eye. And that's what we're trying to get a, get a handle on tonight, that so often as Catholics, we hear the scriptures read to us or we read the scripture ourselves and we say to ourselves, isn't there something more? What am I supposed to be getting out of this text? Um, and, and there's so many aspects of the Gospels that we want to be able to, um, to focus on and, and really drink in, but we don't have the tools oftentimes to do so. I'd like to begin here at the, at the beginning with a quotation from St. Ephraim from his hymns on paradise, from his hymns on paradise. And he says, I took my stand halfway between awe and love. A yearning for paradise invited me to explore it, but awe at its majesty restrained me from my search. With wisdom, however, I reconciled the two. I revered what lay hidden and meditated on what was revealed. The aim of my search was to gain profit. The aim of my silence was to find comfort. Joyfully did I embark on the tale of paradise, a tale that is short to read, but it is rich to explore. My tongue read the story's outward narrative, but my intellect took wing and soared upward in awe as it perceived the splendor of paradise, not indeed as it really is, but insofar as humanity is granted to comprehend it. Uh, it's a beautiful quotation I go back to over and over again because it gives us a view and approach to scripture in a sense of that desire and awe with which we should approach the sacred scriptures. With that, I'd like to turn over to the catechism for a moment to make sure we get our bearings down and uh, take a look at paragraphs 106 just to begin. This is the section in which the church is teaching on the authorship of scripture. And it says this in paragraph 106. God inspired the human authors of the sacred books. To compose the sacred books, God chose certain men who, all the while he employed them in his task, made full use of their own faculties and powers. 
so that though he acted in them and by them, it was as true authors that they consigned to writing whatever he wanted written and no more. This is so important. It's a, it's a fundamental, without which not, principle of reading scripture. And that is that before we apply the biblical text to, say, the moral aspects of our life or whatever it might be, the first and foremost thing we need to do is to try to get inside, in a sense, inside the human author, get a sense of what he's bringing uh, to the text, what his gifts are, his talents, his insights, the context in which he's living. I've said so many times before, if you answer the question, who, what, why, where, and when, when you're reading the Bible, you're going to be 99% along the way to reading it properly. The problem is most people don't ask those questions, and they simply read the text, and then they, they say this. How does this apply to my life? Well, that's biblical suicide, okay? It's, number one, not meant to be applied to your life until you understand who wrote it and for whom it was written. And no, it was not written primarily, I say, as first to you. It was written to a people of the time. And only then can we begin to understand its application in our life. Okay, let's look at paragraph 109. In sacred scripture, God speaks to man in a human way. To interpret scripture correctly, the reader must be attentive to what the human authors truly wanted to affirm and to what God wanted to reveal to us by their words. Okay, so this, this is the same point, uh, that the importance of the human author. And paragraph 110 also. In order to discover the sacred author's intention, the reader must take into account the conditions of their time and culture. This is what I was just saying. The literary genres in use at that time, which is what we're going to be looking at tonight, and the modes of feeling, speaking, and narrating that were then current. And be aware that what was then current may not be current today. In fact, nine times out of ten, it's not. And so it's a bit, it's a bit of a job for us to get back into that mindset and that way of reading, that way of understanding that was so easy for that culture. It may not be easy for us today. For the fact is that truth is differently presented and expressed in various times of historical writing, in mm -hmm. prophetical and poetic texts, and in the forms of literary expression. Okay, paragraph 116, probably the most important of all. The literal sense is the meaning conveyed by the words of scripture and discovered by exegesis following the rules of sound interpretation. All other senses of scripture are based on the literal. The spiritual sense, thanks to the unity of God's plan, not only the text of scripture, but also the realities and events about which it speaks can be signs. So look, the first and foremost thing is to get this historical, literal context uh, to try to get into what the author was trying to communicate. And what he was trying to communicate is not always easy for us today to discover. Okay? Andy, if you wouldn't mind pulling out my notes there, and get, I'd like you to read that quote, quotation from St. Ambrose for me. All right. St. Ambrose says the following. Why do you suppose that any of these details were set down without a good reason? Of course not. If no leaf can fall from a tree without cause, and not a single sparrow fall to the ground without the Heavenly Father's knowledge, am I to think that a superfluous word could fall from the lips of the Holy Evangelist? And here we can, can include all of the authors of the sacred word. 
especially in recording the sacred history of the word? I think not. All his words, if only they have a diligent reader, one who knows how to suck honey out of the rock and oil out of the hardest stone, contain supernal mysteries, are full of heavenly sweetness. Thank you, Andy. And I apologize for the, the side noise there. But this is a beautiful quotation that I've oftentimes kept in front of me because it reminds us to be always attentive to detail, huh? Never to speed through our reading of Scripture. Slow down. Ask yourselves the necessary questions and be willing to do the work necessary to find out what may not be apparent at the surface level. Our program tonight is entitled Hidden from View, Secrets of the Gospels. And I want to just share with you the description of the talk. Many Christians know the basic gospel story and have even memorized whole sections of it. But behind the words which describe the life and times of Jesus is another layer that lies hidden from view. In this study, we will examine the literary structures used by the gospel writers to convey a deeper message and assist us in focusing our attention on the most vital parts of the gospel. So before turning the microphone over to my brother, we have quite a few people in here tonight, and I know that oftentimes we see the word hidden and secret, and it's, it's enticing for us. But I want to caution you. The faith is not, uh, it's certainly not Gnosticism, and we want to avoid this idea that somehow there's, there's this magic secret knowledge. No, and that's not what we're talking about here, and we shouldn't be enticed to want to find those things. What we want to do is get back into the culture and mindset of the people that certainly was not hidden at all at their time, but has maybe become hidden for us, okay? And that's going to require us to roll up our sleeves and to get to work, huh? to get some good Bible commentaries, to get some good editions of the Bible in front of us, and actually do the work necessary to allow the scriptures to shine through and to speak to us as they should. Um, as I said, our program tonight really is to focus upon some of these uh, structures which are underlying the, uh, the text of Scripture to become familiar with them so that we can read them uh, and see them more easily and then read the text with greater profit. And uh, as I said, our program tonight divided into two sections. Okay, The first section is really going to be our preparation for the sec second section. We're going to look at some of those structures. We talk about what those structures are. Um, that the biblical writers used. We're going to look at some Old Testament texts as a way to introduce the heart of what we're going to talk about tonight in our second section, which is some of those texts as are found in the gospel story. So, Father Sebastian, take it away and share with us some of these structures that are, we're regularly going to find in, the, in the, uh, the biblical texts. Well, there are a lot of structures, of course. We have to remember, and as I begin to describe these to you, and as we see examples of them, you might say, I think I've seen something like that in the Trilogy of the Ring, or I think I've seen that kind of idea in a, in a poem. Well, yeah, these are called literary devices. And sometimes people are surprised to see these same literary devices or these tools in the biblical text. So why are they there? Well, if we believe the Bible is the word of God, I mean, not only should you expect that these are the words of of God in the words of men, you should expect that these original human authors would have been familiar with literary devices of their time, as we'll see, but also you'd expect the great author 
right, to of course use all these literary devices because these literary devices are in literature to help you appreciate what a particular author is trying to convey to his audience. So one example that almost everyone's familiar with is typology. Typology, what does that mean? Well, it comes from the Greek word typos, typos, you know, like a typewriter, although modern generation doesn't know that anymore, but a typewriter, it's a, something you write by typing. It whacks, typing to whack. So a typos is, a, is an impression, uh, an image made by something whacking it. In the old world, you may have heard of how someone would write in a, a letter and they'd roll it up. Instead of licking it, as we do today on an envelope, they would roll it up and they'd drop some wax on the edge. And then they would put their ring, which usually had a seal, their, their name or their crest or something having to do with themselves, identify themselves. They'd push that into the wax. And the original image, the real thing, the antitipos, the thing that pushes against the image, is the thing that causes the image in the wax. Okay, so that's called typology. So as we go throughout the scriptures, we find typology all over the place. I remember a Protestant minister I was talking to once said, yeah, that's Catholic stuff. We don't, we're not into that, you know, in the, in the Christian churches. I said, well, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, please. So you don't have to do that right now. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, a number of other places, we have in the New Testament examples where the authors actually say, this is a type of that. This is an image that is fulfilled in that. They actually use that Greek word type. Okay? So, and we've talked about those things in other lectures together. And if we have extra time tonight, maybe we can look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10 or something. So, typology. You know of this as kind of echoes throughout salvation history. You might hear her David is a type for Christ, or the crossing of the Red Sea is a type for baptism that imagery, right? And then framing devices, framing devices. You'll be reading along and you hear something and then you're reading some more and then you hear it again. Well, that's to signal to you that this is a, a unit now. There's something in between that you gotta look at as one unit. Most of these texts were originally oral stories originally. And so this is a way for an, an, a, an individual who has these things memorized, these stories memorized, to begin one story and then end the story. That's the spot where he ends and then begins the next story. They're often a hinge between stories. Framing devices, we're familiar with that. And then something that is really framing devices within framing devices is called a chiasm or a chiasm from the Greek word chi or key. It's the X in, in English. And if you look at an X, it's symmetrical, right? Both sides are identical no matter which way you look at. It's a mirror image. And so a chiasm, and we're going to look at some examples of that in, in a few seconds, is where an author will say something, A, and then he says something else, B, and then he says something else, C, and then he repeats what he said before, B, and then repeats what he said at the beginning, A. And so what this does is it zeroes your focus in on the center, the center of the chiasm, which explains to you what the whole purpose of the text is. So it's framing devices within framing devices. We'll see an example of that in a second. And then parallel cycles. We're going to see that tonight as well. Parallel cycles where you see a series of events happening in a story, and then later on in another story, you see the exact same series of events, which is also, and these are all related, this is also typology, right? You have a story in one episode of Salvation History, which sounds like and imitates 
or maybe even causes a previous story in salvation history. Again, we'll see examples of that. And then finally, merisms. Up to this point, I think it all makes sense to us. We've seen some of these devices before. Merisms is one of those devices we just don't use in English. They'll take two words, opposite words, and it's shocking when you hear the two words. And it means really everything in between. So, for example, I am the alpha and the omega. That's it? That's all he is, is two letters? Right? Well, no, he's everything, right? The beginning and the end, right? The beginning and the end, that's it? What about in between? No, no, the whole thing, right? I am everything. Or an example of, uh, these are ones that are confusing for people often. When we hear in the prophet Malachi, God says, I loved Jacob but hated Esau. What? God hated Esau? If you read the Pentateuch and the Old Testament, he seemed to really take care of Esau. Every time Jacob got out of line, when Israel wasn't doing what they were supposed to do, he said, you leave Esau, the Edomites, alone. They're your brothers. So he was always protecting them against the Israelites. So what does that mean? Well, it means he preferred or he blessed more or had more concern for Israel. Now, why? You think, well, that's not very nice. It is through Israel that he would save Esau. Right? It is through Abraham, who was called from the nations, that he was going to save the nations. God's not a Calvinist, okay? So the uh, other examples of this, in the book of Genesis, in the creation story we're going to look at right now, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why would God make a tree that is both good and evil? Well, no, no. St. Ephraim the Syrian, that Father Hezekiah quoted earlier, doctor of the church, and one who could read Hebrew and Aramaic, fluent in Aramaic, when he spoke of this story, he comments on, he talks about the tree of life and the tree of knowledge. He never says tree of knowledge of good and evil, because he says, well, it's redundant, tree of knowledge. We see in the story, the woman notices the tree is, is able to make one wise, right? So it means all knowledge, right? All knowledge, the tree of knowledge and the tree of life. Okay, I think those are some, at least introductions to some of these devices we're going to see tonight. Thank you very much, Father. That's helpful. And I think um, maybe open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. Look, I just took a photo with my cell phone of my first page of my Bible here. Um, and just to point out to you a couple of things, that the first chapter of Genesis, in fact, the first chapters 1, 2, and 3, are all done, are all structured in a way that, are, that makes it easy for us to memorize. Okay, it's the, kind of the intention of the author. And here's where we're getting kind of underneath the text a little bit. And so you'll see, I kind of changed my highlighting pattern that I usually do for this first couple of chapters of Genesis because it helps me focus my attention. You'll see there in day one, I highlighted that in yellow and, and then the next day in blue and the next day in green and then the next day in yellow in verse 14 and all the way up and then verse 20 blue again and then green again. Why? Because the first chapter of Genesis is laid out for us in a particular structure. And if you know that structure, it's easy to memorize the text. You'll know what God created on every single day very easily, okay? And uh, so on the first day, we have the story of the creation of, of light and darkness, if you will. The, the second day of the sky, of, or the waters above and the waters below, huh? the sky and the sea. The third day, the land and the plants, okay? And if some have pointed out, in these first three days of creation, we have the creation of the realms or worlds, into which God is going to place things, okay? So those first three days are going to be the placeholder for the second set 
of the fourth, fifth, and sixth days. So Andy, if you'll just turn your slide over, it's a little easier to see, I think, on, this, on the next slide. Um, you'll see, day one, light and darkness. Day two, sky and sea. Day three, land and plants. Then day four begins filling these, these worlds up, if you will. So day one and day four are meant to be seen together. Huh? Light and darkness is filled up with the sun, the moon, and the stars. If someone said the rulers of the world, right, of the, of the world of light and darkness, the rulers of the sun, moon, and stars, the rulers of the sky and sea on day two, day five, in a sense, fits into that. You have the birds of the air and the fish of the sea. And then finally, the land and plants, and then on day six, an, uh, animals and man, okay? Um, so the whole of chapter one can be memorized very easily. And then finally, the seventh day stands, in a sense, on its own as the perfection of the other six days. As I've said before, what is, what is first in intention is last in execution. The seventh day is the perfection of all of what has taken place on the first six days. And you can imagine that almost, I think, in two different ways, either as the roof or the capstone of these other days. You could also see it as the bottom, as the foundation stone, or maybe better, as the roof, the capstone, which holds the whole thing together. As one modern scholar pointed out, it's, it's kind of like God is building a temple here. And the seventh day is going to be the roof over the whole temple, which brings the whole structure together. And there's a reason for that. And again, to discover these things, you have to go beyond the surface reading. And you have to dive into some commentaries and so forth. Father Sebastian's going to help us understand that. But before he does, I'll just point out to you, reading with attention, you'll see that there's all sorts of sevens which lead to the seventh day. Seven times, and God said, huh? Seven times God saw that it was good and so forth. All through the first chapter of Genesis, you'll see constant repetition, almost like a litany in the church, saying, Lord, have mercy, Lord, have over and over and over again, driving home the point that this number seven almost is throughout the creation narrative, and finally comes to its perfection then on the seventh day, the day of rest. And there's, a, again, a reason for this, looking at it from a literary standpoint, as the original author intended it. Father Sebastian, can you help us understand the importance of the number seven here in the creation narrative? Sure. Yeah, so the number seven, when we hear seven and we think of covenant, we don't usually see the connection. In fact, when we hear seven, we think of God's lucky number, right? Because so many commentaries will say it's the number of perfection in the Bible. But as you look through the scriptures carefully, you see that the number seven isn't really the number of perfection. That's the number three, actually. But the number seven in the Old Testament is used in the Hebrew scriptures to remind us of covenant. And there are so many examples of this. We can't look at them all tonight. A classic example, you look at Genesis 21, 22, you can see these examples there. But the number seven is in Hebrew pronounced Sheva, Sheva. And in the verb to swear as in to swear an oath, to join yourself in covenant, is shava. Now, you say, well, that sounds kind of close, but they're not the same word, right? Yeah, well, in Hebrew and in Semitic languages, they play off these triliteral roots, and they just change the vowels out to make it a noun or a verb or an adjective or an adverb. And this is one of the Hebrew uh, literary devices. They love to play off off the roots. So if they can, they'll just keep using the same root over and over again. 
So the idea of seven and covenant. Again, lots of other examples. We don't have time to cover them all tonight. But here in the text, we're being told that God is creating in the context of covenant. What does that mean? Well, a covenant is a relationship. A covenant joins two or more together. It makes a relationship. And so when God is creating, he is creating in relationship. This is the opposite of deism, right? You might think about the, the great clockmaker, right? Makes something and sets it off. No, God creates in relationship and remains in relationship. And when the creation falls out of relationship, he goes after it and brings it back. And so it's important. You know the word covenant. You probably have heard that idea here on EWTN and, and lots of books and things today about covenantal structures in the Bible. But what we need to understand is that covenant isn't so much making something new, a new relationship, but rather if we have the patristic understanding of salvation history, the Edenic paradigms we're going to talk about in a couple times tonight, then what it is is it's restoring something old. It's the restoration of what we once had. Why did God create a covenant with Noah? Why did he create a covenant with Abraham? Why did he create a covenant with Moses? You keep looking, you see, you're going to see a restoration of Eden in one way or, or another. This and this, of course, is the best way for us to understand the new covenant and how the authors of the New Testament help us understand that. By understanding it is a new creation, a new creation, right? It's a restoration, a renewal of what was there before, and yet, of course, something much greater with the incarnation, right, with the new Adam. More on that in another lecture. This point is, is really critically important. I, I want to make sure that you guys get this, that the importance of the number seven as a way to keep our focus upon the intention of the text, because the whole of the Bible is this, the very point that my brother's making here, that Father Sebastian's making, that the whole of the Bible is either going to be a divorce a breaking of the covenant, or it's going to be a marriage. Over and over and over again, in fact, uh, Israel in the Old Testament is talked about as the bride of God. Okay, And we hear that again about the church in the New Testament. It's going to be very important as we look at the Gospel of John in a few minutes to keep that in mind. And here in the Genesis creation account, that the whole purpose of the creation of God is to form this relationship between himself and his people. And immediately when we hear about that relationship, immediately when God is going to be joined and, and, and in a sense manifest, revealed on earth through his creation, the evil one attacks. Huh? And this is why I think marriage is so under attack today, is it is the revelation of the mystery of God's love from all eternity in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And therefore... The devil hates God being revealed on earth, okay? And here we have this attack which begins here in chapter 3 of Genesis. And again, knowing the structures which lay behind or underneath the text will help you memorize it. But maybe more importantly than simply memorizing it, will help you to focus upon what the author wants you to look at, okay? My brother was talking about chiasms or uh, successive frames, that are placed into the text. And here in Genesis 3, we have one of those ones that makes it so easy to memorize the text, uh, at the temptation of Eve. And you can just look at your Bibles in chapter 3 right there, and just not necessarily looking at the verses, you know the story well. 
The serpent comes into the garden. He tempts Eve. Eve then takes the fruit and presents it to Adam. Huh? So the serpent tempts Eve. Eve tempts Adam. Adam blames Eve. And Eve blames the serpent. The serpent is then punished. Eve is then punished. And then Adam is punished. You see how the, Moses has placed this, the story in such a way that you can simply memorize it if you know the first step in the story. The serpent tempts Eve. Eve tempts Adam. Adam blames Eve. Eve blames the serpent. And so forth. So you know the whole of chapter 3 of Genesis, which brings us to focus our attention on probably the most important text, and that is, is Genesis 3.15, which has, as my brother's going to show you, has, has its own structure to it to help us really focus in on what's going on. Sure. As Father Hezekiah just said, there, there are multiple chiasms here, and sometimes you'll see them overlaid on top of each other. So there's the chiasm leading into what's called the Protoevangelium, and then there's the, the chiasm that really surrounds it. And again, these chiasms, you'll see one leads into another. It's like this, you know, going up one hill and down another hill. And sometimes there's hills layered on top of hills. It's amazing. So here, everyone knows that Genesis 3.15 is very important. It's often called the Proto-Evangelion, right? The first good news uh, as early as second, third century. And the fathers talk about it in this way. It is the, the hint of hope in the darkness, right? Here we have the fall of mankind. And in the midst of all of this, when God says to Adam, why did you do this? And he says to the woman, why did you do this? Then he says to the servant, because you did this. And then he says to the woman, because you did this. To the man, because you did this. is chiasm. And the sinner is verse 15. And we can just turn there and look at it. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He, that is the seed of the woman, shall bruise or crush your head while you bruise his heel. So uh, how does a, where does a snake bite you? It bites you in the foot, right? And if you get bit in the foot, you might limp, you're injured. But if you're crushed in the head, you're dead, right? So there's a battle going on here, and the author shows us that one will be victorious over the other. The seed of the one will be victorious over the serpent. And as the fathers of the church show us, this is in reference to Christ's destruction of the power of Satan with the crucifixion, his death, and resurrection from the dead. Father, let's, let's move on to uh, the, the flood narrative, because I think there's a couple of things there that also are going to give us this foundation to really look at the gospel text properly. So you'll, just, you'll just turn your Bibles over a, just a couple of pages there, to chapter 7, 8, and 9. I mentioned this in some of my other talks about trying to get the overall theme. Again, it's so easy to get stuck in just the surface level, just reading the words, huh? We know the story of the flood, and we just keep reading the story over. Uh, but maybe there's something we're missing by not getting up above the text and seeing the whole picture, and also getting underneath the text and seeing the structure of what's there. Probably the flood narrative is the most complicated of all of the literary structures, I'd say probably in the entire Bible. It certainly ranks up there. Some have shown that there is a chiasm which stretches across all the way from chapter 7 all the way through chapter 9, okay? This massive chiasm that verse by verse or theme by theme works its way in to the very center. We don't have time to get into all of that, but I do want to point out to you the overarching theme 
that the author is placing into the text, and that's the theme of decreation and recreation. I say this is really important because as we begin to look toward the New Testament uh, to see the work of Jesus properly through the eyes of the biblical authors, we have to have this kind of almost like these sunglasses on, right? These, these glasses that allow us to see through the text properly so that we can understand the themes that are being placed there. And this idea of decreation and recreation, I would say, is the fundamental uh, overarching theme that's going to run along with that marriage theme throughout all of the scriptures. As you know, in the beginning, God separated the waters, huh? the waters above and the waters below. Here in the flood, those waters are going to come back together. Literally, there's going to be so much water coming down, and from the ground, it says the waters burst forth, okay? So you have this decreation, whereas they've been separated before, suddenly uh, they come together again. In the beginning, God breathed his breath. In chapter 2 of Genesis, he breathed his breath into Adam and Eve. And here, if you want to take a look at chapter 7, verse 22, chapter 7, verse 22, everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. Okay? So you have this reversal of the creation of the world taking place. Again, in chapter 8, verse 1, it says that a wind blew over the earth. We remember that wind, or in Hebrew, the Ruach, the Spirit of God, which blew over uh, the abyss in chapter 1, verse 1 of Genesis. So we get now, having seen a decreation, we're going to begin to see a recreation. And you'll remember over the face of the deep is that wind, that Spirit of God, hovered over the waters, there was darkness on the face of the earth. I believe it was St. Jerome that pointed this out. There's two birds which are sent forth from the ark. And the first one is not the, the dove, huh, symbolizing the spirit of God, but it is, it is a raven. And a raven is black, just like the darkness which hovered over the abyss. And then God's light shined and uh, as Jerome says, this, the, uh, the darkness was, in a sense, cast out. We see that in the iconographic tradition uh, of the East, that same mystery of that raven being sent forth and the dove chasing the raven out. Then, in chapter 9, verse 1, chapter 9, verse 1, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, You got it. It's Adam and Eve all over again. Be fruitful and multiply. Of course, you know the story well. Adam, in verse 20, says he becomes a tiller of the earth. He's a gardener, right? He gardens, he tills the earth, he plants the plants. The vine grows, and he plucks the fruit of the vine. He makes wine out of it. He consumes the fruit. He sins through consuming the fruit, and that sin redounds upon his children. You see, it's decreation and recreation theme, which is going to be the, the governing, the, the guiding force, in a sense, of the whole text. But in order to see that, you've got to get above, you can't get stuck in just reading words, huh? You have to see the story that's painted for us. Andy, if you want to pull up for just a moment that chiasm, which I had mentioned, um, you'll see this on the thing, and we're not going to go through the whole thing, but this is the, the, the sense of that, that X, the side of the X, if you will, uh, that my brother was pointing out to you. And a chiasm always focuses on the center, and it'll help you to focus upon the most important verse. And that most important verse in the flood narrative is 
the center of that whole chiasm, chapter 8, verse 1. And God remembered Noah. And from that verse, and we can probably bring this down so it's not too confusing, but I just wanted to see you guys how that works, where the center is the most important point, then everything mirrors the verse before and the verse after it mirrors each other. And the verse before that, the verse after that mirror each other. Okay. As my brother says, multiple framing devices. It helps us focus upon what the author is trying to tell us. That God is about to bring about. When it says God remembered, it doesn't mean that God forgot. Okay? God never forgets. We talk about God's memory. We're talking about God is about to act to renew man in his image and likeness, to make present again on earth the one he had made in his image and likeness, which is why all of that language that was originally used for Adam is now used for Noah. Okay, God is about to bring about the restoration. So prior to 8.1, it's all decreation. But after that, it's all recreation. And those things all mirror each other time and time again. I'll share with you a quotation from St. Athanasius. And by the way, if you say, whoa, pull that, that, that chiasm back up, I'm not going to do it. I'll tell you why. This is your homework. You got to go in there and find those verses and those themes. Sometimes it's not, it, not words, but themes that go back and forth. Okay? All right. This is what St. Athanasius says. We begin with the creation of the world and with God its maker. For the first fact that you must grasp is this. The renewal of creation has been accomplished by the self-same word who made it in the beginning. Thus, there is no inconsistency between creation and salvation. For the one Father employed the same agent for both works, fashioning the salvation of the world through the same word who made it at the first. Okay? What is he saying? In order to understand restoration, you have to understand the way the thing really was in the beginning. And then begin to look for that restoration throughout salvation history. It's the same God acting. And he doesn't change his plan. We change our plan. But when we come back into covenant, with, covenant union with him, when the marriage between God and man is restored, then suddenly that restoration is going to look like God's plan in the beginning, for it is the same God and same creator for both works. And that is why we see that, that uh, the same type of language, same type of images in the flood, why we'll see those same type of images in the crossing of the Red Sea, why we'll see those same type of images throughout salvation history and into the New Testament and into the writings of St. Paul. If you've got the image of your home in mind, then you're going to recognize it when you return there. All right, Father Sebastian, why don't you go ahead and take us now out of Genesis and uh, as we move forward in salvation history. All right, so we've seen the creation story. Of course, there's much more there, but we're, we're limited on our time tonight. And you know the story well enough. And then we also looked at the flood story. And again, much more there, but you know it well enough for what we're doing tonight. Now let's turn to Exodus chapter 14, and you might be surprised by what you see there. This is the story of the crossing of the Red Sea. Again, we can't read the whole story. I'm just going to remind you of the major themes and elements here. Remember, back in Genesis chapter 1, when there was water over the land, we heard about darkness, and then we hear the Spirit of God was hovering over the water. And then 
and then we hear about God creating light, let there be light. The light began to shine, the waters parted, the dry land appeared. What was the purpose of separating the waters? So there'd be a space for the dry land. The purpose of the dry land, so plants could come forth. The purpose of the plants and the dry land, so there'd be a place for the land animals, most importantly, mankind, to dwell and to be nourished, right? So you can see this dependent structure all the way through. When we look at the flood story, as Father Hezekiah just mentioned, we see the same imagery again. The word there for spirit in Genesis 1, and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters, is that word there in Hebrew, ruach, which can be translated wind or, or any, lots of other things, breath. But typically most Bibles put spirit there. Which it, wind or spirit would be fine. The wind of God or the spirit of God. And we say, well, I like spirit. Okay, that's good. Fine. I do too. But when you come to the flood story in chapter 8, you hear about God sending a wind to part the waters. The storm blows away, right? And then all of a sudden you have a separation again of the water above the water below. And but that word there translated as wind in our English Bibles, that's that word, ruach. And as the fathers of the church point out, who are reading this in Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek and Latin, right? In the, they're, they're seeing these parallels that we're not seeing in English because our English translations use different words in these places, where in the, in the original Hebrew, it's one word. In the Greek, pnevma, spirit, in both places. Okay? So that's important to understand as we look at Exodus 14 then. There's a problem, crisis, right? Just like there was, in, there was chaos and darkness, and then you have creation. Right, resolves the problem. Just like there was crisis, you have darkness and storm and death, and then resolution of the crisis with the resolution of the flood. And the same thing here. The people of Israel come out of Egypt. They're standing on the, the shore of the, of the Red Sea. They have nowhere to go. They're looking, and there's no dry land. There's only water covering the land. And so God sends the wind or the spirit, whatever word you want to pick in your English, and the waters part, so the dry land can appear. Why dry land? Well, so Israel can go through on dry land. So the people of God can be on the dry land. <clears throat> Even the imagery of the, of the plants on the dry land is there. Where are they headed? They're he headed to the promised land, the place of flowing with milk and honey, right? A, a beautiful land of, of all sorts of, of life. So we can see that parallel structure. This is that cycle. And then, of course, she asked the question, why? Right? Well, that's really neat. But, but it's not just neat. There's something there. Why, why are we seeing this? Well, it's the same author. It's the same author in all of these works, right? If God is always acting in the same way, if he's immutable, we're going to see a repetition of his works in every stage of salvation history, almost like an echo of the word of God through which he creates, echoing throughout salvation history in different episodes. But there's more to it here. As we saw in the catechism at the beginning tonight, we have to think of who is the author of these texts? Well, the fathers of the church and majority of the history of the church has always said that Moses has at least some sort of hand in the human writing, the human authorship of, this, of these five books, Genesis and Exodus. And so you would expect to see some similarity there. So if Moses is the author 
of these stories, then what is he trying to tell us by showing us a crossing of the Red Sea that echoes in our mind, it screams at us like the creation story or the flood. What was the purpose of telling the flood story the way he did? Well, he was showing us, as Father Hezekiah pointed out, that Noah is the new Adam, right? There's a new creation happening. There was decreation and recreation. Here we're going to have decreation and recreation. The waters are going to come upon the land. The Egyptians and the wicked, like the wicked and the flood, are going to be washed away. But Israel will be preserved. And so we see in the Exodus story, creation imagery again, the Edenic paradigm. God is restoring his creation as he brings Israel out of the darkness of Egypt and into the light of the Mount Sinai. You know, I'm going to encourage you uh, as you, we finish our program tonight to go back and read through the Exodus story, applying this idea to the text and allowing it to really shine through it. I think you're going to see the Exodus story in a whole new way in the parting of the Red Sea in terms of the parting of the waters at creation and so forth. Um, we are uh, out of time for our first section, so we're just going to have a very short 60-second, two-minute break and come right back together. Okay, we're going to be turning to the New Testament now, and uh, of course, we could spend hours upon hours upon, well, do a whole semester course just on Old Testament literary structures, but we're going to turn now to the New Testament, to the Gospel story, because I want you to see that all of what we've been talking about is not only applicable, but extremely important to reading the Gospels as they're meant to be read. And the first thing we want to look at is Gospel of John chapter 1. Andy's going to pull up for us a slide, which will show you, I'm not going to spend much time on this, but the whole of the prologue, that is verse 1 through verse 18, is itself a chiasm, focusing our attention on the most important verse. Go ahead and pull this down, Andy, just we don't have time to look at it except for the sons of God in verse uh, 12. Most people think the most important verse in the prologue is verse 14, and that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. But this is not the most important of the verses as far as John is concerned, because the incarnation is for a purpose, huh? And that purpose is our restoration, our recreation, our, um, our, our restoration in the image and likeness of God. The center of of verses 1 through 18, the prologue of John, is verse 12. And the center of verse 12 is that phrase, sons of God. Jesus is born of the virgin. He becomes flesh for a purpose. And that purpose is our divinization, our remaking as sons of God. But looking maybe a little bit bigger picture here, right in the same text, John places for us a beautiful um, story underlying the, the text we're reading, and that is the story of the recreation of the world, as we've been talking about. You know in verse 1, John says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, Rem reminding us of the beginning, huh? Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. But he goes on. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was made nothing that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness. Do you remember the last time the light shined in the darkness? It was back there in Genesis chapter 1. On what day, Bible students here at the Institute of Catholic Culture, now that you've memorized the text? Day 1, huh? Day 1. And so John is using this image and the entire structure 
of the seven days of creation to help us see that Jesus' work is, in fact, a restoration of what Adam and Eve lost. So just very quickly, go with me to a few verses, and we're going to count together the days of John's recreation of the world. So we have day one here, the light shining in the darkness, okay, in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. And then if you look at verse 29 with me, do you see the next day? You count them off with me. That's day two. Verse 35, the next day, that's day three. Verse 43, the next day, that's day four. Now, chapter two, verse one, on the third day. We go ahead and add the three days, and how many days do we have? Seven days total. And what happens on the seventh day of the Gospel of John? There's a marriage feast. There's a marriage feast. And the bridegroom fails. Think Adam. Fails in his duty to his bride. And Jesus, the new bridegroom, steps in to the picture to provide for what the failed bridegroom did not provide. Do you see? By seeing the structure that is placed underneath the text, we begin to read the Bible in a whole new way, and we allow the author to speak to us in a way that he wants to speak to us, in a way he intends to speak to us. But because we've lost our contact with the way of reading of the early Christians and the Old Testament church, we lose our ability to hear properly and see properly. That whole, by the way, the, the whole of the prologue, verses 1 through 18, is like a, a, a pebble dropped into a, a pond. And the themes which are established there in the prologue of John ripple out throughout the entire gospel. Okay, again, another, another literary technique that John uses that if you know, you can read the whole gospel in those, verse, those little 18 verses and then watch how he unfolds each one of those themes throughout his gospel. Father, I think you had another of a point to pick up on that about the wedding at Cana here. Yeah, so the wedding at Cana, of course, happens as we read chapter 2, verse 13. As we continue, the context of all of this is the Passover, the first Passover in John's gospel. You probably have heard Jesus' ministry was about three years. We learn that from... John's Gospel, because John tells us about three Passovers. He tells us about three Passovers. And so the first Passover is here in chapter 2. This is in the midst of the first Passover. It's mentioned again in verse 23. It was at the time of the Passover. So John tells us the wedding at Cana when Jesus multiplies wine. He produces an excessive amount of wine, lots of wine. Why does he do that? Well, as many commentators have pointed out, that if you go back and you look in the Old Testament, look at Isaiah's prophecies and other, that when the Messiah comes and when the kingdom is restored, that the mountains would run not with brooks and rivers of water, but with rivers of wine. The image that it would be a, a, a time of great abundance and feasting and joy. Okay? So this is the, the first image here. The Messiah has come. Right? But there are two other Passovers. If we look at the next Passover in chapter 6, 
<clears throat> most people are familiar with chapter 6 and the Bread of Life discourse. At least vaguely familiar with, this is the passage you, you whack your Baptist friend over the head with as you try to convince them of the real presence in the Eucharist, right? Well, there were no Baptists running around in the first century. So what was John hoping you'd do with this text? So as we look at the text, yes, we hear about the real presence of the Eucharist, but no one was denying such things in the first century. So what was John trying to teach us here? If we look at the bread of life discourse happens in the context of something bigger, the Passover, the second Passover. So one year later, after the wedding at Cana, at the next Passover, Jesus multiplies bread. The bread of life discourse is the tail end of a multiplication story. Jesus multiplies bread. Now, we already heard about multiplying wine, and now he's going to multiply bread. I wonder where this is going, right? Lots of bread and lots of wine. What do we need that for? So as you come to the third Passover, which we're all familiar with, Jesus died and rose from the dead in the context of the Jewish feast of Passover. The Synoptic Gospels make a big point of this, and John does too. But John tells us about the previous two Passovers because he wants us to see this final Passover in a Eucharistic way. He wants us to understand that what Jesus is going to give us. People often say, why doesn't John give us the words of institution? Well, he already did. This is the whole point that Father Hezekiah is making. That, you know, when we, when we sit there, we look at, say, the Synoptic Gospels, and we read the Last Supper narratives. It says he took some bread and said, this is my body. Take it and eat it. Then he took a chalice, a glass of wine, and he handed to him and said, this is my blood. Now drink it. And do this in remembrance of me, which means this is going to have to happen open, over, and over. You're going to need an awful lot of bread and wine for that. So that's in the Synoptic Gospels. But in John's Gospel, he talks about the multiplication of wine so that his people would have all the wine they need. Multiplication of bread so they have all the bread they're going to need. Why are they going to need this bread and wine? Because at the end, he's going to become for them their bread and drink of life. He's going to give them something much bigger than what Moses had given them the Passover in the Old Testament. So there's why John doesn't tell us Jesus' words of institution at the Last Supper. Because for John, it's not a Last Supper. It's a mystical supper that's going to go on. And he's already supplied the bread and the wine for that. As Paul will tell us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we who eat of that bread through that one loaf, we all become one loaf. Right? So St. Paul sees the continuation of this, of that Eucharistic meal that Jesus gives his disciples through his time and, of course, into ours. There is one other structure I want you to look at, though, before I hand the mic over to my brother. And that is, if you go back to John chapter 6, there's something very interesting here. One of those parallel cycles that we talked about already. Chapter 6 begins with the story of the Passover. When was the first Passover? The first Passover was in Egypt, right? You remember the story where they, they had the unleavened bread and the, and the lamb and, and all of that. And then after the Passover in Egypt, what happened? They left Egypt and they crossed the Red Sea. In chapter 6 of John, we hear about a multiplication of bread in the context of the Passover. So they have a meal. And then in verse 16 and following, they cross the sea. 
You even get a parallel. They're, they're afraid. Remember, the Israelites were afraid, and here they're afraid. And Jesus says, don't be afraid. This is verse 20. It is I. This is, again, one of those spots where the translators drive me nuts. It is I. Ego imi. I am. I am. That statement of God's existence from the Exodus story, his, his divine name. And then after the story of the cross of the Red Sea, what happens next? Do you remember? Crossing the Red Sea, the Israelites come on a dry land in chapter 16 of Exodus, and they're hungry. And what does God give them? The manna and the flesh from the quail, right? Both the flesh and the bread that come from the heavens, gifts to them to feed them. And so as we look in chapter 6 of John, they come to the other side, and look what happens. Jesus says, this is verse 26, you're seeking me because you're hungry again, right? So they're hungry. So all of a sudden we hear the story about manna and the bread of life, and Jesus talking about his flesh and how the fathers were in the wilderness and they ate, but they died. He's going to give them the true bread which comes from heaven, the true flesh, his own flesh what's going to feed them. And then finally, you remember, in Exodus chapter 17, after they were done with the story of the manna and the flesh, after they'd eaten, then what do you do? That's when you drink, right? You need something to drink after the meal. So in chapter 17, they're thirsty, and they strike a rock, Moses strikes a rock, and water comes forth to feed them, to give them water, right? And that's exactly what we find after John chapter 6. It's in chapter 7, at the Feast of Tabernacles, in verse 37, this is chapter 7, verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and, and said, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. The first time we saw that riv the rivers of living water are the rivers that flowed from Sinai out to the camp in the wilderness to give them drink. And so these are just a few structures. We could spend the whole night doing this today, but I, I know my brother has a few more things he wants to say. Well, I just want to say this is awesome. And it's uh, it, being able to see these insights is, is fantastic. And even like for myself, I'm, I'm learning as you're talking and I've looked at these things so many times, but you know, it occurs to me, some, maybe some of the participants may be saying, well, gee whiz, I could never have figured that one out. Okay. I want to, first of all, caution you that we're not just making this stuff up, okay? To remember, what our attempt is, discover these literary techniques which were used by the author intentionally, placing it there for our discovery, okay? So we're trying to refashion our, our, our biblical eyes to be able to see properly, to be able to refashion our biblical ears to hear properly. And to do that, I guess, say what I said at the beginning, you have to slow down. You've got to read with attention. You have to be willing to stop. And when you get to a text like John 6, you know, what is it, right in there, verse 32, he's talking about Moses and manna. You've got to be willing to stop and say, hey, maybe there's something more here. And then go back and begin rereading with these, this new vision, new eyes, to be able to pick this stuff up. Or earlier when I was talking about the next day, the next day, the next day, when you see that repetition, hey, start counting. Start paying attention. Start letting that repetition really hit you. Boom, 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 fast. And, and then we'll allow the, the author to start really speaking to you and guiding you through the text. And that's going to require two things. You have to know the text well, number one. You have to be willing to get up above the text, see the whole story together as one. 
And then you also have to be willing to get underneath the text and examine the, the minutia, if you will, to see all the repetition and so forth. And then you're going to see that whole picture. But look, we can't spend our whole time on the Gospel of John. So, Father, I think you've got some insights for us on some of these other Gospels, some other texts that we can look at. We have so many things in our notes to cover, but we're going to have to pick and choose really the good stuff that's going to help us understand that. Uh, maybe something outside of the Gospel of John is going to help our participants uh, as they're hearing these stories and reading them for themselves. Sure. So let's turn to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew is a good Semite. He writes like the authors of the Old Testament and like John does. You can see a lot of similarity there in these structures. But let's look at what Matthew does in chapter 2. In chapter 1, we've covered this in other lectures the infancy narratives here. But let's look at something that we mentioned just briefly in our study of the infancy narratives together a while ago. Matthew chapter 2, actually, I'm sorry, go back to chapter 1 for a second. I want you to look at one thing first. Matthew chapter 1, verse 16. Matthew chapter 1, verse 16. This is along the lines of what my brother was just saying. When you hear something, sounds interesting or a little it makes you think, well, slow down and look at it. Look at verse 16, chapter 1, verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph. Jacob, the father of Joseph. Jacob, the father of Joseph. I've heard that somewhere before, right? <laughs> right? Jacob, if nothing else, the name Jacob should make you think. But then Jacob, the father of Joseph, right? Joseph was Jacob's favorite son. You remember the story. All right, so then Matthew's probably going to be doing something with that, right? Well, we heard Joseph having dreams, right? Joseph's going to have dreams here. Remember Joseph the dreamer in Genesis? So Joseph has his first dream in verse 20. As he considers, an angel appeared to him in a dream. All right? How many dreams did Joseph have before he went down into Egypt? Two dreams. Remember that? Okay, so here's the first dream. Joseph, son of Jacob, first dream. Now, next dream. Chapter 2, verse 13 and following. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. There's the second dream. Joseph had two dreams. And after that, he went down to Egypt. Well, I wonder if that's going to happen here. Of course it's going to happen. So what he does, though, what Matthew does, before he tells you that Joseph's going to take Jesus down to Egypt, he's got to tell you something about Jesus. He's told you that Jesus is the son of David and son of God. There's the virgin birth. You know that. But he wants to make sure you're thinking typologically. So he says to you that this was to fulfill the prophecy of Hosea. Out of Egypt, this is verse 15, I have called my son. If you go back to Hosea, the son there, that's Israel. Out of Egypt, I've called my son. Israel is the son of God in the story of the Exodus, Exodus chapter 4, right? Let my firstborn son go, Israel, my firstborn son. So he tells you that. Why does he tell you that prophecy from Hosea right there? I don't know. What does that do? Well, it immediately tells you that this Jesus, this boy who's the son of David, who's son of God, who's the new Messiah, is also the new Israel. And he tells you that just before they go down to Egypt, right? So they're going to go down to Egypt now. And then while in Egypt, Jesus is saved from death. Why is that important? Because that's what Joseph did. Joseph went to Egypt, led Israel 
the, the people of God into Egypt eventually to save them from death and famine. You remember the story. He said, well, that's maybe just a coincidence. Well, look what we saw before. Jacob, father of Joseph, we saw two dreams just before they went down. And he tells us Jesus is the new Israel here, by the way, son of God. So let's look on the other side of the story now and see what we see. What happened next? You know eventually Israel came out of Egypt. Jesus comes out of Egypt, right? But there's more to it. When they came out of Egypt, what did they do? They crossed the Red Sea and then entered in the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus here crosses the Jordan River, so there's a water crossing, just like Israel, and he enters into the wilderness for 40 days. Now, everybody knows the 40-day wilderness time for Jesus is the 40 days is parallel to Israel's 40 years. In fact, the Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy 6 through 8, which are quotes of Moses commenting on Israel's failure in the wilderness for 40 years. So you can see the parallelism down into Egypt, out of Egypt. You can see the Jacob, Joseph. You can see the dreaming. You can see the, the 40 years. And you can even see the water crossing. But hopefully if you're paying attention, and this is exactly what my brother was saying. Hopefully you said, wait a minute. Are you pulling wool over my eyes? There was a water crossing. But it's the wrong water. Right? Here he's crossing the Jordan, but Israel crossed the Red Sea. I mean, it would have been nice if, couldn't Joseph have taken Jesus through the Red Sea maybe just to make it perfect? No, because if he told you that, that they crossed the Red Sea, then the air would, the, the tire would lose all its air. His purpose is not to simply tell you Jesus the new Israel. His purpose is something even greater. And the clue to it is that problem. You looked, wait a minute, this is Jordan, cross the Jordan versus cross the Red Sea. If you go back to Joshua, the book of Joshua, okay, we're going to go back to the Old Testament for a second. Jump back to Joshua, Joshua chapter 4. After Joshua had led the people of Israel across the Jordan, in verse 23, it says, For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up, right? So the book of Joshua signals us to a parallelism or a framing device of the crossing of the Jordan and the cross of the Red Sea. Moses led the people out of Egypt across the Red Sea. Joshua leads them across the Jordan into the promised land. And so what you have is this huge chiastic structure. Egypt is the opposite of or the parallel to the promised land. And the cross in the Red Sea and Moses is the parallel to Joshua and the Jordan River. So, okay, so that's neat. Yeah, okay, I can see what you're saying here. Well, this is, this is the whole point. Joshua, Joshua, when we hear that name, what do we hear? When we hear Jesus, unfortunately, we don't hear the same name. And this is in our English text again. I, I love our English translations, but I also go nuts. So Jesus is the same name. As Joshua in Hebrew, in Aramaic, in Greek. And so when you're a, a New Testament author writing in Greek and also speaks Aramaic and even a little Hebrew, for you, it's the same name. There's no difference. It's the same name in both spots. So what that means is we need to look for Joshua imagery in the New Testament, Jesus imagery. And here we find it, Joshua crossing the Jordan River. You say, oh, well, that's neat. So it is. It, it, Jesus is the new Joshua leading them in the promised land. 
Just like Joshua of old, finishing off where Moses left off. The law, the Torah, I got them up to this point. Jesus is given the new law at the Jordan River. He's the new Joshua. Lead them into salvation. Yeah, beautiful. There's one last text I want to look at with you before I hand over the mic. Turn with me to Psalm 114. There is another place in the Bible where we get this parallelism that Matthew is expecting we're going to know. And that's Psalm 114. I say Psalm 114. How, how is Matthew going to expect we're going to know Psalm 114? Well, you got to turn off Snoop Doggy Dog. you got to turn <laughs> off Seinfeld and CNN. And you got to start listening to the good news. you got to start listening to the songs of the Bible as opposed to the songs of this world. I know you're not listening to Snoop Doggy Dog, but whatever people are listening today. All right, so turn to Psalm 114. When Israel went forth from Egypt... The house of Jacob from people, strange language. Oh, what, you think we're maybe something related to what we saw in Matthew? Yeah, we're talking about the Exodus story. Judah became his sanctuary, Israel his dominion. Verse 3, the sea, that is the Red Sea, looked and fled. The Jordan turned back. The mountains skipped like rams, the hills like lambs. So what the, the psalm has just done is layered for us in synonymous parallelism, the crossing of the Red Sea and the crossing of the Jordan as basically the same event for them. Matthew, of course, knows this psalm well, as all Christians in the early church did and his audience. And so what is Matthew doing trying to remind us of this story? Why is he trying to remind us of this psalm? Because he's trying to tell us what the church has always told us about the baptism of Jesus. Look what it says here. In verse 5, Oh, what ails you, O sea, that you flee? O Jordan, that you turn back? O mountains, that you skip like rams? O hills, like lambs? Verse 7, Tremble, O earth, at the presence of Yahweh, at the presence of the God of Jacob. Right? What does the church tell us? What do the fathers of the church tell us? What does the church always said about the baptism of Jesus? It is the revelation of, of the Trinity. It is the revelation that God is dwelling among us. And so what Matthew is trying to tell us, of course, with his infancy narrative, by telling us that he's the son of David, who is the son of God, by showing us that he's the new Israel, all of this is leading up to this first climactic moment in his gospel to reveal to us something very special, that this child who has now grown up and is fulfilling these images of the Old Testament is not just another type, but he is the ultimate anti-type, the one who causes all things. He is the creator. He is not just the human king. He's the divine king that they had from the beginning. Wow. That's like taking a fire hose and put a biblical fire hose and put it in our mouth. That's, uh, <laughs> I got to have to chew on that one for a while. Uh, I hope you guys are appreciating this as much as, as I'm appreciating it. There's so much that we're taking in. It reminds me, we have to be, really, we have to be Bible students in the sense we need to know the whole of the scriptures. We need to be reading our whole Bible and getting the sense of that, that whole picture so that it, it becomes easy for us to do what Matthew wants us to do, you know? It, it has to become easy for the, the author to teach us. It has to be easy for John to point out the Lamb of God to us and, and with all those images supposed to bring forward to us. Uh, it has to be easy for Matthew to, uh, to teach us and to speak to us 
about his experience of the Christ so that it can become our experience. We can stand in the feet, if you will, of the one who saw and see it as he saw it. Uh, then I think the Bible is really going to become alive for us and not just story after story after story, but revelation which goes deeper and deeper in this mystery of decreation, of recreation, of calling the bride back to him and restoring that covenant relationship which he intended for us in the beginning. And I think we can conclude with this by turning to the final chapters that are in our Bible, uh, in the book of Revelation, to chapter 21 and 22 of the book of Revelation, to kind of do what I said earlier, that is to rise above all of these texts and to begin to see the Bible as the catechism states as one book because of that one divine author, which is writing and weaving this beautiful story of salvation history for us. It's not by accident that these things are placed there for our discovery, and it certainly is not by accident that we read in the final chapters of the book of Revelation that restoration of what was lost in the, in the beginning, in the Garden of Eden. If you take a look at chapter 21 of the book of Revelation, John tells us, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Why is the sea no more? You gotta, look, you guys are going to stop. You're going to stop just reading, and you've got to start asking yourselves questions. It was in the sea that all of those evil men of the Old Testament were buried. It became the, the place of burial, if you will, a symbolic tomb, as we say about baptism. The sea was no more. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. How? Prepared as the first holy city, the Garden of Eden, was prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling of God is with men. Do you remember when God dwelt with men in the past? Certainly, that was his intention in paradise. And it continued to be his intention throughout all of salvation history. It's what we hear Jesus did for us in the Incarnation in the Gospel of John chapter 1. And God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eye, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. All of those things which came at the fall of Adam and Eve, our first parents, are now wiped away. And he, he who sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. So you've got to stop and ask yourself, if he's going to make it all new again, what's it going to look like? It's going to look like he made it in the beginning. So we need to read the end here of the book of Revelation side by side with that original pattern which St. Athanasius talked about, which becomes the pattern for all of salvation history. Look at verse 7. He who conquers shall have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son, Adam. Just like John promised in 
verse 12 of his prologue. Then, verse 9, then came out of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Do you see this imagery from day seven of, of Genesis and from day seven of the gospel of John now comes to its fulfillment in the final chapters of the book of Revelation. And notice when he's speaking about the city, the, which is called the bride, he's not just talking about dead stones in the temple in Jerusalem. Look at verse 14. And the wall of the city had the 12 foundations, and on them the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. See, the city is literally built out of the body of Christ, the church. Let's take a look at verse 22. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord, the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine upon it, for the glory of God is its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. As John tells us, in chapter 1 of his gospel, and as we learn that the light comes forth from God on day 1 in Genesis. Then look at chapter 22. Then he showed me the river of the water of life. Hello, the river of the water of life from the Garden of Eden, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the streets of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life. Is back again with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. I can, look, I can go on and on. We have to see the Bible and read the scriptures the way that it was intended to be read in the beginning. The way that it was intended to be heard in the beginning. We have to enter into the scriptures. We have to walk with Moses. We have to walk with David. We have to walk with John on the Jordan River and see it and hear it as they saw it and heard it. We have to fight against a modern reading, a New York Times reading, if you will, of the gospel text, and, and begin to allow them and, and to speak as they're meant to speak to us. With all of those tools and ways of writing that have come to us, but which sadly we have lost, by regaining these literary structures, the framework, by being able to see into the text and, and read the patterns which the authors have placed there, we can again be able to hear Moses speaking to us. We can hear David speaking to us. John has placed and Matthew has placed into their writing something hidden from most Christians today. But it's hidden there for you, Sue, and sister, and Macrina, and Jane, and Andrea. It's hidden there for us. And when we discover these things, Anne, when we discover these things, John is speaking to us again. And we stand once again with him there in the gospel story. I want to conclude by going back to that quotation I shared with you at the beginning from St. Ambrose as a way maybe to encourage your, your scripture reading as we enter and embark upon the journey of Lent. He says, Do you suppose that any of these details were set down without good reason? Of course not. If no leaf can fall from the tree without cause, and not a single sparrow fall from the ground without the Heavenly Father's knowledge, am I to think that a superfluous word could fall from the lips of the holy evangelist? I think not. All of his words, if only they have a diligent reader, 
one who knows how to suck honey out of the rock and oil out of the hardest stone, contains supernal mysteries and are full of heavenly sweetness. Thank you, Father Sebastian, for uh, joining us in our first ever Institute of Catholic Culture tag team. Uh, I think it went, went quite well, so thank you very much. It, it was a pleasure to be here. Uh, all right, question and answer. Okay, first question is from Michael Wolf. He asks, is the massacre of the infants in between Jesus' exile to Egypt to point to Moses' survival of the infant massacre of the Israel's infants in Egypt? Yeah, so uh, these texts are so rich. I wish we had time to look at all of this together. I think when we cover the infancy narratives together, I think I mentioned that briefly there, but that is something that many commentators have pointed out. There's a, that Jesus is, especially in Matthew and in John's gospel, Jesus is being shown in many episodes to be the new Moses or the greater than Moses. And so there's certainly Moses typology there. It's through Moses that the law came, right, as John says, but it's through Jesus that the true grace, right, the, tr the true gift, the true law comes. So Jesus is the new Moses or the greater than Moses in John's gospel, and then also there's a number of little spots in Matthew's gospel where you see that. Later on, we're going to see Jesus going up on the mountain, and he's going to say, you have heard that it was said to the men of old, he's quoting from Moses, but I say to you, right? So again, there's another spot in Matthew's gospel where you have that Moses typology. Okay, so yes, absolutely, that the massacre of the infants and Jesus' survival from that is intended to show you just like Moses uh, survived the massacre of the sons of Israel back in Egypt. So he's the new mediator of the new covenant. I was just going to jump in there. There's another question here that Father Sebastian has got a, a nice insight on coming from Martha regarding um, this repetition that God said it was good. Um, and being a good, attentive reader of, of the scriptures, she's noticed that on one day in particular, it doesn't uh, mention that God saw that it was good. Martha, I got to tell you, that's what you need to be doing. Exactly what you just did there. Paying close attention, looking for repetition, but also looking when that, the, uh, the pattern breaks down and then to ask yourself, why? Why? Father Sebastian, could you kind of give us some insights on that? Yeah. So as Father Hezekiah was saying, the pattern of seven is all over Genesis 1. It's not only do you hear the seven-day structure, which is the most obvious, but buried in there, you hear, you hear grammatical structure. Some of it comes out in English, some of it doesn't. In the Hebrew, I don't know, I've never counted how many times you get this, but there are at least, I'd say, five to ten different seven structures. And a lot of it is buried there in little Hebrew grammatical structures, verbal forms and things like that. But the point is, seven's all over the place. But as Martha said, wait a minute. I hear what you're saying, but there's something wrong. If we've got this pattern of seven, shouldn't we have good seven times? What's really interesting is you do get good seven times, but there is one day, as Martha pointed out, where you don't have the word good. So you see this on day two. It says that God created light and he saw that it was good. Next day, he parts the waters above and below, makes space right in between the atmosphere, if you want to call that. But it doesn't say that it was good. And then you come to day three, and you hear that when the dry land comes forth, now it was good. The reason is the author's trying to show you the purpose of each one of these days is to lead into the next. The purpose of the separation of the water above and the water below 
was to prepare to have a space for the dry land to appear. So day two is not good that is not fulfilled. This is philosophical good. This is not good versus evil in the sense that we would say a moral good. But this is it's not fulfilled. It's not good. It hasn't come to fruition until the dry land comes out on day three. And the way the author does that, Martha noticed it. Of course, he's hoping Martha and all of us are going to notice that so that you can understand the purpose of the separation of the waters was so the dry land can come forth. And the purpose of the dry land can come forth was so the plants can come forth. And the purpose, et cetera, et cetera. So you can see it all leading up to the climax, as Father Hezekiah says, and that is the creation of his own children, the image and likeness of God, right at the end, mankind. And so there are seven goods there. And day two, you get a skip to signal you to look to day three, which is the fulfillment of day two, as you saw that structure, right? And on day three, then, you get the word good twice. So the author's being very careful with that structure of seven, but he's also playing with it a bit to make sure you focus in on something more than simply seven, but how there's a climactic moment to each one of these days. I want to finish up by just, uh, there was a good question asked about a resource, and I I think uh, we would be doing a disservice if we left without a couple of resources because Father Sebastian and I, you know, aren't making these things up. They're things we've learned from others. Uh, That's the beauty of the tradition of the church. And uh, many of these things are set down by the fathers. The first thing I would recommend for you is St. Ephraim's Hymns on Paradise, his Hymns on Paradise. Well, I shouldn't say the first thing. The first thing I want to recommend to you is reading your Bible. So, you know, all those things people are commenting on are right there. So just get out your Bible and start reading it. Uh, that's number one. But uh, St. Everett's Hymns on Paradise uh, is put out by St. Vladimir's Press, and uh, you can pick that up. Fairly, It's fairly inexpensive. Don't get caught up too much in the introduction, which is quite long. Read the text itself. You know, then you can go back and really study what the translator put in the introduction, but it's about half the book is an introduction. But uh, I, I recommend that for your meditation. Beautiful book for meditation, using lots of biblical imagery in his writing. But then in addition to that, you should have in your library a concordance, a concordance. Okay, this is a Strong's concordance. Emmaus Road has also put out a concordance. Okay. Why do I say that? Because a lot of times you'll be reading and you'll, you'll, you'll read something like a name, okay? Like my brother was talking about Jacob, and you might be saying to yourself, I know, ah, but who's Jacob again? Man, it's been three years since I was reading Genesis. <laughs> so you think, I can't all find that. Well, your concordance, you can look up words. A word concordance is what you want, by the way, not a phrase concordance or theme concordance. You want a word concordance so that you can look up a word. And every time the name Jacob appears in your Bible is going to appear here in your word concordance, okay, as you look it up. Things like that can be super helpful. And so I, I, I do recommend having that in your, in your resource. Father Sebastian, did you have any other resources that you would recommend to the people? Lots of great stuff out there. Uh, Jean Daniello, The uh, Shadows to Reality. There's also, I saw you're about to grab uh, his other book, um, The Bible and the Liturgy, which is a great book, but it's a, maybe a little more than what, what we're talking about tonight specifically. We talked about this uh, last time we did, when we were talking about Sacrament's Initiation, we talked about this book. But he has another book called Shadows to Reality, which is a nice little thin book. So it's easier to read. And he's just simply talking there about typology. And a lot of the typology we talked about tonight, he talks about in there. 
and uh, lots of other wonderful resources, but specifically about what we're talking about tonight, those are some, I think, the most helpful resources. Wonderful. Thank you all for joining us tonight. Let us conclude with the sign of the cross. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. God bless you all, and uh, we hope to see you soon. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.